Matthew Weatherly White is the kind of guy you'd be happy to find yourself sat next to at a dinner party. Although, at first you may be wary, he works as an investment advisor after all. But as you get talking with Matthew, you realise his personality and his passion for life stretch far beyond his day job at Caprock, where he's a founder and an impact investment advisor. You see, he's as interested in hiking in the mountains and in crafting a lifestyle as he is to reshaping markets for the better. He's inquisitive and he's a deep thinker, and most importantly, he's not afraid of telling it how it is. And that's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast. My name is John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about the future of sustainable business, the new economy, and how your investment decisions, no matter how big or small, can have an impact. We covered a lot of ground in this conversation, going far broader than just impact financing. We dug into the political stalemates that both the US and Australia are facing in trying to deal with climate change. Matthew spoke passionately about the potential for capitalism to be reoriented towards environmental resiliency and to move beyond its very narrow focus of profit maximisation. And he weighed into the debate on whether investors in public markets can influence the companies they buy. He didn't hold back, but he did offer his advice on the levers that might just sway these big listed companies to steer more towards sustainability and long-term thinking. And Matthew's analysis of Larry Fink's annual letters was a really useful insight into one perspective on how the world's largest asset manager is trying to drive a focus on sustainability. Had a ball speaking with Matthew. We could have gone on for hours and I just hope you enjoy it as much as I did. And please do stay tuned till after the credits when Matthew gives us a breakdown of two radical new policy concepts coming out of the US. Those being opportunity zones as well as the Green New Deal. You may have heard of them, but Matthew's working closely on this stuff, so his breakdown is really solid. All right, let's do this. Check out the show notes on the website at johntreadgold.com. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook and join the conversation by dropping us a comment or an email. Enough out of me. Here we go. some research today I did a Google search and the first entry for your name Matthew Weatherly White was a morning routine and, and there's oh, nothing yeah. more cliche for a podcaster to ask than what's your morning routine <laughs> so I won't do that but yeah look that was quite an interesting one that's what the world most wants to know about you I hope we're going to get a bit deeper than that today you live your life in line with the sustainability values you preach and how important do you feel that is for impact investors and those sort of more broadly preaching sustainability to walk the walk and not necessarily live frugally, but to lead by example? It's really tempting, I think, for those of us in this discipline to get really moralistic about what we're doing with our investments. I think there's probably a braiding of hypocrisy and moralism for a lot of reasons, some of which are sort of easily judged. How big is your house? You know, how, much, how many miles per gallon does your car get? You know, things like that some of which are much less obvious, like how can you extract yourself from a late 20th, early 21st century global economy that basically runs on you know, hydrocarbons? That's very difficult to do. And then it's all, all the way down to really simple stuff. Do you ride your bike to work? How deeply do you, really, do you really live it? And I think I do my best. I travel. I recognize the hypocrisy in air travel at a day in these days. And I was so impressed with Greta Thunberg just calling out all the people in Davos when she showed up in a train, you know, via train, and I think there was like 700 private jets that flew into Davos this year. I don't really know how to sort of grapple with that. You know, as I mentioned a second ago, we live in an economy that's driven by hydrocarbons. It's very difficult to extract yourself from that, if not impossible. And so what I try to do is make decisions that sort of resonate with my values, um, with the way that I live my life. I ride my bike to work, I drive an old car, I live in a small home, I've got 5.7 kilowatt um, solar system on, on my roof. You know, I, I sort of do that. And 100% of my personal investments are oriented towards impact. And it's everything from renewable energy project finance with companies like Greenbacker and Generate to trade finance with you know, advanced trade capital and Trilink Global, my you know, public equities, my public debts. Like that's, that's what I do. And that's, that's sort of the way that I feel that I can come to this conversation with, I don't want to rely on hyperbole, but you know, with a pretty deep sense of conviction, right? I, I know that 
if one were to peer over my shoulder at my balance sheet, doing so would reveal a commitment to everything I talk about. You know, it's funny because uh, many years ago now, when our impact platform started getting a lot of traction in the marketplace, I was introduced to several very well-known, very outspoken luminaries in the impact investing world. And these guys are people with large balance sheets who have self-identified as tip of the spear, committed impact investors. And I went into the meetings thinking, all right, these guys are going to want like full court press on the, sh the really cool shit that we're doing. And a month later, the conversation sort of all dwindled. And when I asked for feedback, what came back to me was, well, yeah, you know, we're just not, we're not all there. And, you know, one of, one of the people that I talked to, who I really love $200 million balance sheet, 5 million of it is an impact. And this is an individual who is spoken of with great reverence in terms of their commitment to taking a lot of innovation risk with their investments. And then that kind of disconnect is, it's really hard for me to, to sort of grok, right? It just doesn't make sense to me how that can happen, but it's endemic. Well, that's, I mean, incrementalism, you know, hasn't worked for the last 20 years and, and we really do need to speed things up. But, you know, winding back a bit there, you know, I have strong conviction that there really is the power of the individual. And I think in, certainly in Australia, we have a very small population, but we're going toe to toe with the US to see which country is the biggest per capita emitter of CO2. But all too often in our politics, which is clearly influenced by the coal lobby and these sorts of things, about these claims that if we reduce emissions as individuals, it'll do nothing to the global numbers if China and India don't reduce theirs. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's an excuse. It's not very fair. I mean, those individuals in you know, China and India, huge populations, they're all far more efficient, really, than any of us. They're also poorer, I yeah. guess, is, is the point. Do you think that we need a combination of the collective action? Or, I mean, my view is that in Australia, if we make the change, if we can reduce our per capita emissions, if we can create the technology, we can lead the way. That's a business opportunity. It's kind of our responsibility to lead. But I just wonder, is that going to make a dent? Well, I think that's the existential question of our time. And I think at that point, you have to turn to the science and decide whether or not that 12-year horizon is accurate. And if it is, then we need to do absolutely everything that we can. Like we need to do everything that we can or else this planet's capacity to support human life as we know it is going to be really brought into question seriously. And if it's wrong, then we've got a longer runway, but directionally, we know where we're going. We have to wean ourselves off of hydrocarbons and we have to do it quickly. And at this point, there is sufficient technology yeah, with some wrinkles, but there's basically sufficient technology to get ourselves to a post-carbon economy. And there might even be sufficient capital. That's an, a bit of a different question, but there's certainly not the political will. And the longer that that sort of continues to be, the, so the operant case, then your question is spot on. It's like, what, what does trigger that transformative change? And I'm a, a huge believer in capitalism as an optimization mechanism, right? And to date, we have simply agreed tacitly or explicitly that, that what we're going to optimize for is net operating profitability. That's what we have agreed capitalism should operate for, optimize for. But who's to say that it shouldn't also optimize for environmental resiliency? right, just to take one thing. I mean, nobody, that this is a construct created by a man and articulated by Milton Friedman less than 50 years ago. <laughs> and to think that that is somehow like carved into stone and handed down to us in tablets, like that's just kind of bullshit. And so the fact that we as a society have sort of collectively agreed to not challenge that fundamental assumption, it's one of the biggest problems <laughs> the way that I see it. And, and I'm not alone, right? I'm, I'm following the footsteps of many other people who have been thinking like this for a while but the way that we think about it collectively is that capitalism is an extraordinarily powerful optimization mechanism. And if we can get it to tilt a little bit more towards something like climate resiliency or closing the opportunity gap that has resulted in income and wealth inequality, that's what capitalism does all the time, all day long. That's what it does really well. So why not orient it in that direction? And then I think things happen really, really quickly. But until it happens, I don't think it's going to do it at all. Because the political will is not there. There's sufficiently deeply held cognitive bias around optimizing for net operating profitability that I don't see it happening. And I'm over here with a lot of other people, again, like putting our shoulder to the wheel of this conversation, like every single day saying, hey, guys, like we can do this. Like this will work. And yet that conversation is gaining currency. It's still broadly sort of a rounding error on the global capital markets. You know, there's definitely a lack of political will, no doubt there. But if we depend on capitalism, you know, 
if we depend too much, are we doing that currently? And, and is it the, the human failing of, of us all just wanting convenience? And, you know, as you say, you and I, we both fly internationally. We drive cars when it's convenient. Those sorts of things are making it easy, I think, for our politicians to lean in that direction and, and not really lead. Is there a risk? You know, I agree. You know, it's, it's the, the profit maximisation is that it's only the one direction is a problem and that maybe we can fork that. There should be other layers to it. But is there mm-hmm. a danger that we then regress to the sort of the worst of human nature? Yeah, there, there is that risk. And I think that risk sits sort of in two buckets. The first is, all right, if we do end up in a lifeboat drill, what do we start looking like, right? Do we start looking like cannibals? That's a loaded thing. Or do we let greed sort of drive it? And I think what I didn't say, and I should have emphasized it, is that there is absolutely a role for government here. And the role for government is to set the rules that will begin to internalize the negative externalities that have heretofore been ignored by the operating system of capitalism. And I think that the government is actually uniquely poised to do that. And are they going to get it wrong? Probably. Are there going to be some unintended consequences? Absolutely. Some perverse incentives? Without a doubt. I get that. I'm just not a huge fan of government other than government sets the rules and ensures a playing field. I'm not even going to say a level playing field. They just ensure that the playing field is there and the refs are sort of circling the game, making sure that nobody's cheating or at least not egregiously. And I think that if government could lead, to your point, to date they've not demonstrated the willingness to do that, but if they can lead into that direction, then I think the capital markets will respond incredibly quickly. And I I say that actually not as a Pollyanna here. I'm not simply saying, oh, yeah, the capital markets are going to figure it out and we're all going to be good. But the reason I say that is that I talk to conferences like all the time. And these these people are, are, are at best curious about impact investing and at worst hostile to impact investing. And not yet have I ever encountered anybody at one of these conferences who said, you know, I just don't really give a shit about the environment. Nobody says that. You know, if the rules are set, so the capitalists, myself included, just sort of saw, all right, this is how we're going to now be engaging with the flow of capital through our society. I think it would happen really quickly. I think people would bitch and moan for a period of time, relatively short, say six to 18 months, and then everything would recalibrate and we'd be off and running in the same way that the capital markets adjusted within a year at least in the U.S., to the elimination of fixed commissions for trades. Good God, the hue and cry from Wall Street around that, that the world was going to come to an end. But nothing really happened. Everyone readjusted, and they found out different profit-making models, and then the discount brokers came along, and then the big money centers came You know, all that just happened, because that's the evolutionary nature and the evolutionary capacity of capitalism to adapt to a changing environment really, really quickly. That's right. And of course, the issue that hasn't, it's been such a battle to deal with is you, you use the term negative externalities. And that's yeah. obviously come up a lot in these conversations. And I think uh, people might sort of get scared away by this sort of economics terminology, but it's, I mean, it's really quite a simple concept, but it's one that maybe it comes back to political will, putting a price on carbon. I mean, that's yeah. seen, you know, a couple of, of Australian politicians kicked out of office, basically, for trying to bring this sort of regulation in. Why is it so difficult to price negative externalities. Do you think it's technical or is it simply a, you know, a minerals council lobby kind of thing? Australia is sort of a unique case because the coal lobby is so powerful in Australia. And you have this bizarre twinning of an incredibly powerful coal lobby and like the most demonstrably clear evidence of climate change, like maybe of any development nation in the world. I mean, the, the drought in the, it's the Murray Darling Basin, right? You know, and Galahs like falling out of the sky and millions or maybe hundreds of thousands, I wasn't going to count them, fish dying in, the, in, that, in that river. It's like Australia is like the front lines of what is happening with climate change right now. And yet even in that environment, it seems like, I'm not even going to say the political world, I will say the political consequences of not taking action to date are invisible. I mean, and just to add one more thing, I mean, Murray-Darling Basin there is, it even gets worse because we've got cotton growers up north <laughs> that have been pulling the water out of the system. Yeah. So that's making it even worse downstream. So, yeah, all of those factors coming together. And while there's, you know, political risk of imposing a tax, you know, where is the fear? This is what I don't understand is where is yeah. the fear of the future of like what, how history is going to be written? I mean, isn't that such a huge risk? I just don't get it. Yeah, you know, I saw a, um, a presentation done some time ago and it was a you know, standard two up, two across grid. And I don't know exactly what the, the boxes were, but you know, it was sort of, consequences of not acting was what they were trying to get to and they used the analogy i think it was of orange juice right and they said okay if a bunch of doctors came out and said orange juice is not good for your child like if, if you drank a bunch of orange juice and it turned out that it was okay for your child and they were wrong well then you were good 
if you didn't drink a bunch of orange juice because you were scared and turns out it was okay, well, that's not a huge loss, right? It's like, all right, you didn't drink any orange juice. If it is bad for you and you drank a lot of orange juice, well, then your child's going to die. And if it is bad for you and you didn't drink a lot of orange juice, well, then you just avoided like this amazing thing. But what was the actual sacrifice? Well, the sacrifice was relatively minimum. And I grant that the analogy breaks down in the application of it, but it's like a really wonderful way to think about it. If a bunch of scientists warned us about the environment and we were sort of, yeah, you know, we can change or we can't change. And what are the consequences of taking action, the consequences of not taking action? I think most people to your point would be like, oh yeah, yeah, we should probably, we should probably do that. Right. And yet nobody does. And you know, the word you used uh, a few minutes ago is the word. It's convenience. As a society, we make so many of our decisions based on convenience. I mean, we're willing to sacrifice our privacy in exchange for being told where the nearest Starbucks is. That's like the ultimate example of it. Google's printing money off of our private information because we're willing to give it to them for free in exchange for the convenience of having the Library of Congress in our pockets. That's what we choose to do. And like I said, I'm part of it, right? Because I am intrinsically hypocritical because of the time in which I live and the economy in which I operate. And yet I also would love, I would love for that to shift. <laughs> Do you know um, much about like game theory and uh, like the prisoner's dilemma? Have you heard about that? I was going to bring it up, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to go too deep. We could be here. Oh. <laughs> um, and, and that's no doubt where we are. And, yeah. and that's definitely the game we're playing because you've got nations. I mean, if we think about it as if there was an international carbon quota for every individual, rather than thinking about it as China's the biggest emitter, and it's like, well, only in yeah. terms of policy, in terms of individuals, they're not. That's the US and Australia. We had individual yeah. quotas. Maybe they could be traded and maybe we have to wait for the blockchain and that sort of thing. And we don't want to talk too much about that because people will switch off. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's where you know, that element comes in. Certainly in terms of, you know, are we operating as a global community and let's all do it? Or if we're thinking about nations, the politicians want to keep their GDP growth running so that they're kept in a job and, and, you know, who knows when they're out of office, they want to be able to get into the jobs that, that pay the most in, in this country. And so, I mean, is that sort of where you're going with the game theory story? Yeah, that is. In the most cynical interpretation of it, a nation is best off letting everybody else take the economic hit while we ride on the coattails of their commitment. I'm not going to ascribe that level of strategic sophistication to the current administration in the United States. But yeah, it, it really reductionist interpretation of it. That's basically what he's been saying. You know, we're out of Paris, go pound sand, you guys can all do it. And there's a little part of me that just wonders if he's sitting here saying, yeah, they'll just take the economic hit in exchange for a benefit that will accrue to all of us. Um, and yet I just feel like, you know, to your point, a second ago, if there is an issue that is sort of post-national border and post-partisan or non-partisan, bipartisan, it's this one. And we can argue about all sorts of other stuff. Wealth inequality, should billionaires be made illegal? What does it mean that sort of have a growing class of aristocrats effectively in the U.S. with the elimination of proposed elimination of the state tax, et cetera, et cetera? And those are all important, useful debates to be having. The one that we shouldn't be having is this one around the science of climate change. And I recognize it. I mean, there might be somebody right now working on a way to extract carbon from the atmosphere at a scalable, economically feasible way. And if it is, then this whole conversation changes instantly. And I'm okay with that, right? I mean, as much as I've sort of uh, hung an enormous amount of my own personal and professional credibility on this idea of impact investing, I would like for nothing more than somebody to come along and make the entire thing, at least from an environmental impact perspective, make the whole thing moot. Because then we don't have to worry about this. But I don't see that happening. I mean, a friend of mine, his father's a, a physicist, and he actually has a, a working model of a scalable carbon extraction device. And I've looked at really hard at it, and apparently it's going to work. But I mean, to get it to the scale where you're going to suck enough carbon out of the atmosphere, it's just like, oh my God, like, it's not going to happen anytime soon. So I think it comes down to time horizons, right? Because with yeah. the business dilemma, that's, that's purely in the short-term time horizon. You don't have to look very long. You've only got to look 10, 20 years. And it's pretty clear that the economic, the business opportunities of renewables are huge. Massive. And that far outweighs the, the short-term benefit of burning a bit of coal and having cheaper power for a few years. Yeah, I remember almost a decade ago, I was talking at a Euromoney conference I just sort of surfaced this idea. I said, you know, I don't understand why 
the world's capital markets aren't looking at the evolution of the next phase of energy as one of the greatest investment opportunities of our lifetime. I mean, we went from biomass to coal and from coal to oil, and now we're going from oil to renewables. And it feels like broadly there's a consensus that that's not as nearly as good of an investment opportunity as we think it is. And yet if we transform our entire energy complex globally, astonishing fortunes will be made and equally astonishing fortunes will be lost just like during transition to oil. Yeah. Well, look at that. I'm glad we're swaying to some of the more positive, you know, the opportunities rather than all the negatives. And, and yeah. I listened to a Ted talk you gave recently, you offered a list of key factors that are catalyzing the shift towards sustainability in the world of finance. A couple being Norwegian sovereign wealth fund divesting from fossil fuels, broad scale wealth transfer to millennials and the B Corp movement. Can you give us an update on that? Are there any sort of fresh themes that you want to add that you're keeping your eye on at the moment? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I, I didn't say was the paired trade in the Norwegian sovereign wealth fund. There's the divestment decision and then there's the reinvestment decision. And the divestment decision at this point, I think is relatively easy. There's been plenty of research done around all sorts of sort of optimized ETFs or quasi-passive strategies that demonstrate very low tracking error, despite the fact that they're taking all of the carbon intensive companies out of the index. So I get that. That's a relatively low lift. And I think one could also argue that that decision is almost like a giant hedge for Norway because they have so much exposure to hydrocarbons in the ground, right, under the North Sea. But then the flip side of it is they're actually doing an enormous amount of investing on the positive side. And I talked to asset managers. I'm not going to get the numbers exactly right. I'm probably not authorized to speak about this anyway, so I didn't do it in the TED Talk. But my understanding is that they've allocated several billion dollars to like 10 managers who are all trying to hit moonshots on climate change mitigation and adaptation strategies for, you know, massively scalable projects. And they are taking a lot of innovation risk in that. And so, you know, here you have a you know, country that has become wealthy on the back of sales of petroleum. And they're really thinking hard about what it looks like to try to create a post-hydrocarbon world. And I just think that's unbelievable. You know, the B Corp thing, I think, is, is more of a, it's sort of a movement and a trend. I don't see sort of anything fresh coming out of that other than more and more companies are doing it, which is just sort of great. Like, that just is, is cool. I think what's really capturing my attention right now is the level of professionalization and institutionalization among the participants in the impact market. You know, five years ago, most of the asset managers were... I'll say sort of sophisticated market participant activists. Their goal was to attract investment capital to prove out a thesis that they could invest differently or for a different set of sort of non-financial objectives. And their funds were relatively small. You know, if you saw a hundred million dollar impact fund, that was a really big fund. But fast forward a couple of years and, you know, Bain Capital, one of the storied private equity firms, regardless how you feel about them, they steward a lot of capital and, Texas Pacific Group or TPG, again, one of those, like, just the absolute like, legends in private equity investing in the United States. Again, never mind what you think about them, that's just simply a fact. Both of them launched funds, and I had the great pleasure of spending about four hours with a team at Bain who was you know, sort of tasked with the responsibility of launching this fund. And, and I found them to be humble and inquisitive and sharp thinking and utterly committed to this idea of not only demonstrating they could run the fund, but then letting that fund serve as the template for the broader company. So they came to market with $175 million target raise. I think they closed at 250, you know, a nice chunk above target. Bain, I see me TPG came to market with Rise One with a billion dollar target. I think they raised 1.7 in a shorter time frame than their TPG growth fund, which is was sort of the bread and butter private equity fund. And within two years, I think it's been about 18 months since they closed, they're in the market again with Rise Two with I think a target raise of 3 billion. And no matter what one thinks about their commitment, the depths of purity to impact or whatever, that's a really big number. <laughs> and if they think they can raise that and subsequently deploy it and get the kind of returns that will satisfy them as shareholders in TPG, I say, wow, that's a huge shift. Cause that just simply was inconceivable five years ago. And what got you interested in sustainability, Matthew? Did that come before an interest in finance? It did, yeah. It was somewhat inchoate. I was raised in Colorado and spent a lot of time in the mountains. High places were close to my heart. Empty places were close to my heart. Wilderness is really important to me. And my mom, I've said this in interviews before, and she sort of laughs about it. I kind of think of her as a 
sort of a capitalist hippie. Like when I was a little kid, we'd go down to the local organic food shop and, you know, buy our oats out of big barrels with, you know, scoops. And that was sort of how I was raised. And it's not like I was an environmentalist, but I was clearly raised with an awareness of environmental issues. And that followed me for some time until I got to Wall Street. And at that point, I sort of tried to pursue it. And there just really wasn't a way to do that in a way that felt powerful. I went to my first SRI in the Rockies conference, which is sort of the biggest SRI investment conference in the United States. I did that in 1994. I remember at the time feeling like, wow, these people are sort of my tribe. I mean, they, they talk about the same issues that I care about. They're really sort of thoughtful. They're compassionate people. Right on, this is cool. And like, they're just totally smoking something when they think that transacting in secondary markets has any way of influencing corporate behavior. I just, I just thought that was sort of an intellectually empty argument. And I think it has subsequently been proven to be that way. I mean, there are some notable contrary examples, you know, positive contrary examples that have emerged from shareholder activism and proxy voting and stuff like that. But literally selling shares of a company that you don't like in the secondary market, there's no transmission mechanism to communicate that message to management. And so management doesn't care. I mean, just look at Peabody Coal, right? Peabody Energy, the largest publicly traded seller of coal, maybe in the world, certainly in the United States. And that company went from sort of 90 to two and then declared bankruptcy over the course of about 18 months a few years ago. And yet at no point did they stop selling coal. At no point did they say, God, we're going to go to business. We should probably pivot our business to something. They just kept selling soul. In fact, they, I think they're still selling soul operating under the protection of the bankruptcy courts. That's where I get sort of really fuzzy about sort of public market values aligned portfolios. And, you know, I think it's a place to start. I mean, I've done, I've done it in my own portfolio, right? I just want to make sure that my exposures reflect my values. And I'm, I think I'm realistic as to what that's going to mean in terms of corporate behavior change. But that's where I am. And I mean, I certainly want to dig more deep about impact investing in public markets. But just winding back a bit, you jumped from being a little tacker, going to the co-op food shop with your mum, and then suddenly you're in Wall Street. It'd be great to get, get a feeling for, for how that transition happened because I think a lot of listeners here, you know, they might be sitting in finance, they're in their office, they're getting a little bit tired of the drudgery of what they're doing and they really want to work somewhere that's more aligned with their values. How did you make that shift? Oh, dude, I get incoming emails through LinkedIn, I would say at a two to three per week cadence from investment professionals who are looking for a mid-career pivot because they just feel that their current work environment is just soulless and they want, they want to feel more connected to their work in some way. It's remarkable how often they just send me a note and they just say, God, can we just talk? I just want to be inspired. I just want to feel like there's something I can do. What can I do? How can I do this differently? So my, my story, raised in Colorado, went back east to go to prep school north of Boston, and then I went to college in New Hampshire at a place called Dartmouth. And Dartmouth is this really trippy place because it's an Ivy League school with an intensely rigorous academic environment. And yet, it's the oldest outing club in the country. And they have the oldest ski team in the country. Like it's nestled in the White Mountains and the Appalachian Trail runs through campus, right? And so like there's this real outdoor zeitgeist at the school, which is fit me perfectly, right? This sort of intellectual stimulation combined with the willingness to go out and get really dirty in the forest. Um, and then I graduated from, from Dartmouth and I went to, I moved to Idaho and spent almost 10 years living in um, first a ski town in the mountains of Idaho, and then I moved to the capital city, Boise, trying to sort of figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And then a really dear friend of mine who I'd done some work for introduced me to some guys at Smith Barney and Merrill Lynch and Prudential. And they said, you know, I think you probably have success in this career. And so I interviewed with them. I got a bunch of job offers and chose Smith Barney. And I was just a full on bottom of the food chain, retail stockbroker in Boise, Idaho. And I found it utterly fascinating. And I found the capital markets to be this endless game of three-dimensional chess. I loved working with clients. I loved finding new clients to work with. I love that whole process. So I was really excited for a period of a few years as I learned my trade. And then I started looking for something more. Like I said, I went to this conference in 1994. I started in late 1993, went to the conference in October of 94, and then started to sort of really interrogate this idea of finding a different way to do my investing practice that just reflected my values a little bit more closely. And it was really, really, really hard to do. And so I basically walked away from it. 
I said, you know what, this isn't going to work. I think all these lovely people who are pursuing values aligned public equity portfolios are just sort of deluding themselves a little bit as to how much change they can affect in the world. And so I just kind of walked away from it. Then in 2007, um, so in 2005, we launched the CapRock Group. In 2006, we became part of the very first cohort of founding B Corps, which is another fabulous story. And then in 2007, I met a woman named Georgette Wong, who was working at Sterling Stamos, which was a fund of funds in the Bay Area. And as I was leaving a meeting with Peter Stamos, Georgette pulled me aside and said, hey, I'm going to have a group of friends together tomorrow afternoon. Do you want to come and join us? We're sort of talking about this idea of using the capital markets to create the future that we want to live in. I was like, oh my God, yeah, I'll totally show up. And that was the first time I'd heard the term impact investing. And there was, you know, John Goldstein, who was the guy who started Imprint, which got sold to Goldman Sachs. And there was somebody from the Kellogg Foundation, which was one of the very, very early impact investors of the foundation world. And there was Charlie and Lisa Kleisner, who started Tonic. Some of the people now who I think of as the Promethean figures in impact investing. And I just kind of got dropped into the middle of this purely out of luck. And it's like a bell went off in my head. This was exactly what I'd been missing, this argument that the capital markets and the power of a market-driven economy could actually identify and vet and fund and scale the solutions to the great challenges that I was aware of even at, you know, 12 years ago now. From that point forward, I think it probably took a year or two for me to just make the decision that I was going to commit my entire career and whatever shred of credibility I had to this idea. And you talk about timing and, and synchronicity. And, and I recognize that I was not going to be voted sort of most likely to become a leader in impact investing. Like, no. And yet I was at the right place at the right time. I met people who were really open and welcoming and inquisitive. I volunteered my butt off or everything I could to sort of get involved. And then it just sort of started happening. And here we are now at the Caprock Group with one of the most well-regarded impact investing platforms perhaps in the world and certainly in the United States. And it's just, yeah, it's, it's incredibly exciting. And then wrapping sort of those two elements together in terms of you've ended up at Caprock, a private markets impact investing company, working mainly with family offices, doing great work. But then on the other hand, you know, this criticism of the public markets and, and how it's very difficult to have an influence. Is it dangerous to sort of completely reject that? I mean, is it important that perhaps the impact isn't as clear, it isn't as strong and isn't as deep, but the public markets are so huge um, yeah. and they really do democratize access to the markets, the mum and dad investors. Is there a way to make the public markets work better to have that impact? Yeah, your observations are spot on and you've asked the right question. Is there a way for the public markets to have the same kind of influence? And I think yes. I mean, years ago, I wrote a blog sort of on this idea and I said, you know, which is the greater impact to convince Walmart to eliminate clamshell packaging in their 140,000 vendor global supply chain or to invest in a small community-based fair trade coffee company in Nicaragua? So I think the answer is clearly the former in terms of scale of impact. The question is, how do you do that? Who has the lever to convince Walmart of the sensibility of doing that. And if it adds one and a half cents of unit cost to their shipping, is Walmart gonna do it? I mean, one of the most relentlessly margin-focused businesses that's ever existed, are they gonna do that just because it's the right thing to do? And I don't have an answer. Subsequently, I've met several people who work in sustainability at Walmart, and I gotta say, it's really impressive what they're doing. And so, you know, those people have the capacity to influence the narrative arc of a massive company. You know, I don't think that pressure is coming from shareholders. I think it's coming from public opinion, and maybe that includes shareholders. I think it's coming from some sense of an imperative, a business imperative internally. Maybe I'm being too dismissive. I'll totally own that. And I don't mean to be because all of our clients have public equity exposure. I have public equity exposure. What I'm trying to do is sort of rank order within the continuum of sustainability and impact-oriented investments, how much does my participation in the public equity markets offer the chance to shape corporate behavior? And I think the answer is, is very limited. We've seen that with the letters that Larry Fink has written to his fellow CEOs of S&P 500 companies. You know, he sits on top of the largest single pool of capital in the world at BlackRock. I think he's written these letters to sort of explore almost 
what the reaction to them is going to be. I mean, they're intentionally ambiguous letters. One of the things he said, and not this year's letters, but last year's letter was, you know, if your company does not have, I think it was a social purpose dedicated to enhancing society or something like that, we will not support you. Well, what does that even mean, right? Does that mean that he's going to sell all the shares? Well, no, he's a universal owner. But I think what he's doing is he's sort of putting everybody on notice that something's going to change. He doesn't quite know what yet. And when that happens, then they're going to swing a really, really big stick. <laughs> I think that's kind of it. And he's just like seeing what the market's reaction is to that. Because I think even he recognizes the limits of their capacity to inform corporate behavior. Do you think he would have been surprised at the reaction? Or do you think maybe he thought that it was weaker than it might have been, that there wasn't condemnation? Yeah, I mean, he's a savvy enough participant in the markets to realize that nobody was going to come out and say, oh, right, Larry, you're totally, yeah, you're totally right. We're just going to like, we're going to change. <laughs> like he knew that wasn't going to happen. And so I don't think he would have been disappointed. And again, I think what he's, I think what he's doing is I think he's setting the stage. And I think he's taking several years to do it. I went back just recently and reread the last three letters and each one of them gets increasingly clear with his commitment to a sustainable slash just capitalist system. And the arguments that he's harnessing are getting incrementally more nuanced and they're getting more authoritative. It's almost like we're watching him evolve his own thinking quite publicly. And he recognizes that he's, you know, the CEO of the largest asset manager in the world. So he has to be very careful. And I'm sure these letters were vetted like up and down by a team of lawyers. <laughs> Who knows what he wanted to write? Who knows what he wrote in his first draft? But the sense I get reading them like bang, 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 one after the other is he's creating an argument for the capital markets to operate differently. And with the bully pulpit that he enjoys at BlackRock, he thinks he can shape that. If he's at the top there though, and you know, I totally understand being in finance writing, the impost of, of the lawyers being your editors, but if his draft was vastly more shaking the fist and protesting, why wouldn't it run? I mean, doesn't he make those decisions? It's not his money, but I mean, he's the one driving it. This is clearly a risk issue, long-term risk issue. What yeah. do you think would pull him back? I don't know him. I've never spoken with him. <laughs> Dig into the but head have, of the World's Biggest Asset Manager. <laughs> yeah, but I have been in meetings with some fairly senior people there. And when pressed on a related issue, when they launched their impact fund, which, you know, in all honesty, was a rebranding of an old SRI fund. When they wanted to launch that, they pulled together small groups of people around the country in four or five meetings, basically to sort of test what our reception would be. You know, I asked what they were going to do with their proxy voting because I thought that was a much more interesting litmus test for BlackRock's commitment than what their security selection analysis was going to be, right? And when I asked them what they were going to do with their proxy voting, the response was, oh, we can't vote our proxies in line with, with the values that are being expressed by the letters. And I was like, well, why not? And she said, well, because every single proxy vote that we do is going to piss somebody off. And I thought that was a, like a really candid and understandable answer, right? I really wanted to judge that harshly, and I probably did for a couple of weeks. But the more I thought about it, the more I recognized that, that that's just simply the challenge of, the, of being a universal owner. If you own basically everything somewhere in your company, then you can't really take a strong stand on anything because you're going to be pissing off somebody else that you own. That's not a totally unique circumstance for BlackRock. I think there are other firms that are de facto universal owners, all the big investment banks, all the big asset managers, all the big index funds, ETS funds. I mean, they're all universal owners. And so I think navigating these complexities of proxy voting season as a universal owner is either incredibly thorny or really, really easy. And you just don't do it. <laughs> Yeah, it is happening though. I mean, we've seen the most active proxy voting seasons with all the AGMs and, you know, ExxonMobil yeah. now declaring its um, climate change risks going forward. Perhaps it comes back to incrementalism and that, as you say, just a little bit too slow and the impact really isn't there. I love the way you just frame that because it does come back to incrementalism. And as, you know, as I said a few minutes ago, it's the proxy voting and shareholder engagement that actually changes corporate behavior for sure, not the buying or selling of securities. And the time frame that you've raised several times um, during this call is really, really important because if we know we have time, then I'm 100% okay with incrementalism. I think it's an inevitable future. I think we are well on our way to a post-carbon future. You know, what does that look like 50, 70, 100 years? Yeah, sort of an inevitable future is post-carbon future and be it peak oil or just the continued drop in prices of renewable energy kilowatts or whatever. 
we're going to get there. The big question is, do we have the time to get there? And you know, I referenced the science recently, and you know, 12 years to a tipping point, that's incredibly scary. Even if you discount that by 50%, and it's 24 years, and I'm 55, that's only half of my life. 25 years ago, and that's in my memory for sure. Like, is it realistic that in 25 years, if we don't solve this, that the climate will simply collapse around us? I mean, I don't know if you saw that report about the potential for clouds burning off and a subsequent 14 degree rise in temperature. But if that's the case, then basically life as we know it ends on the planet because everything that we're growing incinerates. I mean, it doesn't like burst into flames, but it can't survive that. And, you know, I would be tempted to dismiss that report as sort of scientific extremism. But a week ago, I was in Costa Rica and met the head of the Guanacaste Natural Reserve, which is one of the largest biological diversity reserves in the world. In the middle of the country, there are these, you know, tall mountains. And they have a measured 30% loss of cloud cover over the last 20 years. Measured. And when you put that up against that report, suddenly it's like, holy shit, that actually is already happening. It's not like that might happen if, that's happening. And the pollinators are moving up the slope because they hibernate in the winter where it's cold enough. And now it's not getting cold enough. And so there's a predator that's going up there and just feasting on the bees because they can now tolerate the temperature. Those are the kind of things that, God, I'm getting really negative, but this cascading flow of negative events, which very quickly result in an uninhabitable, effectively an uninhabitable planet as we know it. Definitely, we're seeing that down here as well. I mean, I've, I've been doing a lot of research work in the Pacific and most of the work there is, is climate change adaptation. There's lots of mitigation, but the adaptation is just, you have to switch to adaptation now because it's happening and the sea yeah, levels so. are rising and, and these are really low-lying islands. So time is the number one issue business is unfortunately operating on too short a timeline. We need to look more long-term, but we've been talking for a long time now. So we do need to, I do need to give you some time to tell us all about Caprock, an investment manager and intermediary, a financial advisor for family offices. Can you tell us a bit more about your platform and how you guys operate? I'll sort of presume that you'd like to hear the differentiation, right? I mean, sure. one of the things that we do that's really different, and this is based on a, I think sort of radical or inquisitive perhaps, approach towards our return assumptions. So we talk a lot about market rate returns and concessionary capital returns. And I think that is shorthand for a whole subset of, of objectives, most of which are based around this notion of optimizing for finance return, right? And on, you know, it's risk adjusting it and blah, blah, blah. But where do market return assumptions come from? Well, market return assumptions come from the past and most people use sort of a 25 or maybe a 50 year backward looking lens. And they look at the performance and they sort of project that forward and they discount it however they want. But we have to recall that certainly the last 25 years have seen falling interest rates globally, increased leverage globally, and broadly deregulation combined with a move towards market economies throughout the world. So we've had basically a set of tailwinds that have led to higher valuations and increased prices, which is in turn a reflection of better financial performance. So do we agree that those conditions are likely to repeat themselves over the next 25 years? Are we going to see a fall in interest rates from 10% to 1%? Well, no. Are we gonna see another massive wave of deregulation and globalization? Unlikely, particularly given the political environment that we see. Are we likely to see an increase in world leverage? Well, maybe at the, at the sovereign level, but unlikely, at least to the same level, at the you know, household level or the corporate level. And so all of those tailwinds are at best in a sort of stasis and at worst are likely to reverse themselves. So how do we think about market rate returns? Hold that question for a second. So what we do is rather than start off with some notion of an efficient frontier and we're trying to optimize return for every unit of risk that we take, instead we start off with a really rigorous lifetime discounted cash flow model, effectively asking our family clients to think of themselves as businesses and identify with as much confidence as possible all of the known future and anticipated liabilities, i.e. expenses. And then we sort of discount those back to the present with an agreed upon discount rate. And we do a present value calculation on future liabilities and future assets in the form of income and inheritance and growth, et cetera. And then we sort of see what kind of after-tax and inflation target rate of return we need to generate for families in order to inoculate themselves to the extent that we can 
against the uncertainties of the future. And that after-tax inflation target rate of return becomes our personal benchmark. And in this whole process, what we sort of end up doing is liberating our clients from the tyranny of the S&P 500. And I say that with my tongue definitely in my cheek because it's sort of a dramatic statement. But what we're trying to do is trying to get our clients to think really differently about what kind of return they need and how to generate it. And as soon as we do that, as soon as we're no longer talking about sort of market rate returns, then the option set either expands wildly if the returns are quite modest, target returns quite modest, or it narrows dramatically if their target rate of return is really quite high because of that lifetime discounted cash flow model. And that opens up a really different kind of conversation and lets us start reverse engineering first an allocation and subsequently the investments that feed into the allocation to generate that target rate of return. It's a, just a really different process. So these individuals don't simply come to you and say, here's our cash turned into as much as you can and that you have no. to then say, okay, we're going to promise you 4% above the benchmark. I've never had that conversation with somebody who chooses to hire us because there are absolutely people who have heard of us. Maybe they've been referred to us and we go through the same conversation and they look at me like I've got, you know, gravel pouring out of my ears. <laughs> like, well, what do you mean? Why aren't you just trying to maximize or I just want more money, right? I was like, well, if that's your goal, there are lots of firms who will internalize that and tell you that they're going to beat the benchmark. And we do. And we have clients that do if that's their goal, but that's not, that's not the way that we operate. You know, the clients who are drawn to us are typically people who recognize that they've already made a great deal of money in their lives and their principal objective is to protect it and to grow it responsibly and carefully and hopefully to pass it down in generations that follow them. And they see us as a, as a good thought partner, a trustworthy steward of that process, a collaborator in protecting their capital and growing it. It's just a really different thing than saying, hey, we're going to really pin the dial on, on return. So that's the financial return. What about the impact return? How do you sort of measure uh, yeah. the impact for them? So first off, when we first started our impact investing, we had two different investment committees and two different processes and a head of impact investing and a head of conventional investing. We sort of operated these two parallel systems, which was fine. And it was my thesis that eventually that somewhat artificial Chinese wall would be dismantled and we would merge the two and we would have one investment process for both categories, which is exactly what has happened. So now we have one investment committee. Every single impact investment is treated the same way as our conventional investments, and they have to go through the same process. They have to be vetted and then approved at the investment committee level. So that's the first part, the sort of investment piece of the impact investments. What we've noticed is that all of our impact investors want to orient their capital along one of two principal axes. The first being thematic, i.e., what problem am I trying to solve with the insertion of capital? And the second being geographic, that being, where in the world am I trying to solve these problems? And every single investment that we've made sits under one of those two. How a family wants to express that, in what way, like even a simple one like job creation, right? We have one family that is super interested in creating high quality sort of pathway to middle-class jobs in the manufacturing valley of Central California. And we have another family that's really interested in investing in jobs for um, widows of war areas in Africa. I mean, those are wildly different applications of one theme, which is you know, job creation. And it's our job to be somewhat agnostic, sort of impact agnostic or impact omnivorous, I suppose is a better way to put it, and to do our best to reflect our clients' values and our clients' missions in their portfolio. And some themes are really investable. I mean, climate resiliency is a really investable theme right now. We can do private debt and private equity and growth equity and venture capital. And, you know, we can do timber properties and all sorts of stuff that all nest quite comfortably under climate resiliency as a theme. Place-based investing can be hard or easy, depending on how broad the geographic footprint is of the defined focus. But then the other themes are really, really difficult to invest in. You know, we have one lovely client who is very concerned about supporting organic local food supply chains in the Pacific Northwest, particularly around Seattle. I don't know if you know much about Seattle, but it's, it, you know, it's a fine agricultural area, but it's not hugely productive. It's quite mountainous. It rains a lot, fairly urban. So it's a really difficult theme to explore with a full portfolio. And so we end up sort of being more generalists with a lot of our clients because that's sort of what it takes to be in. 
and does that mean you must be sort of constantly on the lookout for opportunities and when you have constantly. a new client yeah and then do you then have a lot of inbound is it sort of must be quite an interesting day to day with you know people would get to know that that you are on the lookout and does it go both ways oh it's so interesting it is probably the best part of my job because we enjoy a great reputation in this space everybody wants to talk with us even if it's just to get our opinion on it right so just today I had a conversation with a group of entrepreneurs who want to do a debt-oriented working forest sustainability fund where they want to acquire large parcels of semi-distressed lands out of timber investment management companies, rehab them, and then sell them on to sustainable timber companies. That was one. Young guys, really smart. They want to do it with debt. They want to do it with what are called PRIs or program-related investments and non-dilutive capital. And they want to generate about a 6% return per annum to the investors. That was one. The other one I had was with an Opportunity Zone fund, which I don't know if you've been tracking the Opportunity Zone deal in the United States, but it's a massive tax giveaway slash opportunity for investing in distressed communities. And these guys are a hotel management group based in Central America who want to do a big Opportunity Zone project in Puerto Rico. That's just so interesting, right? I mean, I get to talk with people like this every single day. And it's so cool. You know, the hard part is, even with you know, more than a billion dollars of impact capital to deploy, like we see so many really cool investable ideas just go unfunded because there's not enough capital sort of sloshing around in the impact world, in the impact ecosystem. That sounds like a really interesting day to day. And, and I think when people think of finance, they do think of the markets, they think of the jargon, but they don't think about these innovative new companies and, and opportunities to support them. And the fact that I guess a lot of those, I know those forestry guys probably come to you to tell the opportunity, but also in that private equity type vein to get your opinion, to get advice and that you sort yeah, of work totally. as a team and a partnership and build it up. And then I guess you then have the investors also, as you say, very engaged, might've been working in the, in the field their whole lives and can again offer that input. So hopefully that's given people a, a new sort of perspective on the power of finance and economics and that sort of thing to make a change. I'm uh, aware that we're far over time, but um, <laughs> I can't let you go without a book recommendation. And you did tell me before this that you've got quite a list. If we could have a couple of top hits, that would be really great. Under the category of book that I've given away most often, <laughs> a treatise by a, a samurai philosopher named Miyamoto Musashi called Go Rin No Sho, or The Book of Five Rings. And it's sort of the, the Shinto Buddhist's version of Sun Tzu's classic treatise on strategy, um, The Art of War. Um, and yet it's way more humble. It's really personal. And I've read his biography as well, um, Musashi, so it gives even more context to, to that book. But it's just this short, dense, like read it, a paragraph at a time kind of book about how to think about the way that you interact with your own life, basically. It's a I sort of think of it as one of the world's first self-help books, I guess. In terms of sort of fiction that I've read recently that I've really enjoyed, I read a book called The Gentleman from Moscow that I just loved about this aging Russian aristocrat who just happened to be out of Moscow during the time of the Bolshevik Revolution and then returned, surprised to find himself a prisoner. And he lived his entire life in this sort of gradually shabbifying, glorious old hotel in Moscow. And he sort of just observes what's happened in Russia over the, his entire lifetime. Beautiful, beautiful story. Another one is fiction that I just, I wish I'd written. It's one of the few books I've ever read where I finished and I said, oh my God, I'm so jealous of the person who got to write this. And that's actually a, a neighbor of mine here in Boise called All the Light We Cannot See. Two great fiction books and then the sort of a <laughs> random nod to Japanese samurai literature. <laughs> Good stuff. Does that mean you're a writer yourself? I am. I've made a living as a writer for many years before um, I got into, into finance. And I just continue to write a little bit. I actually had a book contract that was sort of on the way a couple years ago, and I stepped away from it because I just didn't want to feel obligated. So I have a book gestating somewhere inside of me very, very, very slowly. But yeah, I've published poetry and travel writing and short stories. Um, I love writing. And is the book that's on the way, I mean, is that fiction or nonfiction? It'd be nonfiction. Yeah. The yeah. sort of the, the working idea was tales from the trenches um, of changing the capital markets. That's obviously what you know, I'm trying to achieve with this um, podcast is helping people understand this evolving kind of structure. And, and you're you know, certainly central at it, certainly central to that. You've been in the trenches. So yeah, I think a book, a well thought out book 
by uh, someone that reads widely would be really useful and I think very timely, but obviously you need to be ready for it yourself and, and give it a good hot go. So yeah, I really hope, <laughs> you do. hope you do keep going with that. But yeah, time is important with that. Yeah, look, we better leave it there. But uh, look, I got so much out of it today and I think it's great to have the time to be able to sign wax lyrical about the philosophy of it. And, and I think that doesn't happen enough with finance and, and certainly economics is much maligned and blamed for so many ills, but also, you know, we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater and we just need to adapt and evolve. So thank you. That's a great closing statement. I couldn't have said it any better, John. We're in Australia and the Opportunity Zones and the Green New Deal, two elements coming out of the US that I think Australians aren't quite across. Would you be able to give us like a really quick kind of synopsis of what that's all about and whether you think it's positive or, or sort of going in the wrong direction? I'll speak to Opportunity Zones first. I was not involved in drafting the language that eventually got embedded in the legislation, but I was right behind that. So I actually know a fair amount about Opportunity Zones. And the original idea was to create a massive tax incentive for private capital to flow into communities that could be investable, but were distressed and underfunded. So sort of capital-starved communities. The tax incentive is in the form of two pieces. First, a tax deferral. So if you sell something with a capital gain and reinvest that capital into an opportunity zone, you don't pay taxes on it until you sell the investment inside the fund. And if you hold it for more than 10 years, then it's totally tax exempt. So you get a combination of tax deferral and tax exemption. And there's more wrinkles to it there, but that's sort of the basic structure. It can be operating companies. It can be venture capital funding. It can be real estate. There's no, almost no limits on the kind of investment that can be in the OZ. There's a lot of wrinkles around how the OZs are, are identified. The federal law actually gave it to the states to determine which um, what are called census tracts or the areas are designated by a combination of zip code and income and percentage of average income in the state, et cetera, to identify the, the zones. The governors were responsible for doing that. And then the idea was a private capital would sort of flow in. And this has been a land grab in the United States. The amount of capital that is being identified or targeted to raise, it's unlike anything I've ever seen in impact investing. And I think the big risk here is that you get a lot of unintended consequences. You get stuff like, you know, hotels being built in opportunity zones just because that's sort of the lowest hanging fruit project. And some of the really recent stuff that's been happening around requiring impact reporting for impact zone investments, I think would has the capacity to make sure that at least it's done with the intention of the original law. So OZs are really interesting. I think it's the best take I have seen on aligning the interests of pure commercial actors and communities that are capital starved. I'll put it that way. The Green New Deal, that's such a different thing. On the one hand, I hate the language. I wish that our representative AOC, we call her, I wish that she had used different language because by calling it the New Deal, you sort of bait anybody who recognizes that that's a nod to Roosevelt during the Depression, which was really sort of the birth of the social safety network in the United States. And so I think unfairly, but understandably, has been sort of tarred with the brush of socialism. So the fact that she used that language to describe it, I think, was probably intentional and provocative, and I think a little bit unfortunate. I, I would have rather had, she said something like, you know, the green moonshot or something, and sort of make it more aspirational and more sort of, hey, everybody, we're all in this together, a little bit like Kennedy's speech to, you know, we choose to send people to the moon, not because we have to, but because we choose to, we choose to do it because it's hard, you know, that fabulous speech. It's like, let's use that <laughs> to talk about changing our, our energy complex. But however, what she's basically saying is that science is real. We are the problem. There is a solution and there is a sense of urgency. And as a result, the only actor that has the capacity to move the dial that quickly with that magnitude is the government. And therefore the government should step in and say, we're going to mandate this. The people who love it, they're going to love it anyway. The people who hate it, they're going to hate it anyway. It's drawn really clear battle lines in the sense it sort of balkanized the politics around it. But the real benefit, I think, in it is that it moved, by virtue of its extremism, it moved the whole conversation left or towards the environment. Whereas before, the debate was, is the science real? Which allowed the climate deniers to sort of, sort of punch above their weight in the conversation by saying, hey, not only is it real, it's incredibly urgent. If we don't do, we're all going to die. 
the climate deniers are going to ridicule that. But that sets the other end of the continuum so far to one side that somebody can sort of be a centrist and be far to one side of where the center was even two months ago. And I think that's the quiet, transformative aspect of what the Green New Deal really is. Do I think it even has a hope in hell of passing? No, I don't. I think there's too many forces aligned against it. But it focuses the conversation really differently. And that gives other actors the opportunity to step into the conversation in a way it's really, really productive. So, you know, it took a really brave woman and somebody who's super social media savvy to sort of pull that off. I'm really curious to see where she goes with this. Because I think, you know, while I think that her particular brand of socialism is sort of an intentional lightning rod, I also think she's one of the more interesting and dynamic politicians to emerge on the American scene, and certainly in my lifetime, one of them, not the, but certainly one of them. Yeah, two very different, but very innovative policy options. So thank you for that, Matthew. Appreciate it. You bet.